Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to Severed. On this podcast, we sever the details and offer analysis on true crime to paranormal cases. We are your co-hosts. I am Harry Chambers. And I'm Drew Hudson. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the co-hosts and do not reflect the institutions we are affiliated with. Content and trigger warning, this episode contains themes of suburban horror and stalking. Listener discretion is advised. Please email us to say hello or leave comments, questions, or feedback at severedpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at severed underscore podcast. Leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. The Westfield Watcher, seven-minute story in narrative context. There are numerous ways to enter a home, stepping beyond the frayed edges of our welcome mats. For the Broadus family, Derek, Maria, and their three young children, who were ages five, eight, and ten at the time, the entry point into their home and psyche was through a mailbox. Its solitary and unassuming post just outside of their $1.3 million Dutch colonial home at 657 Boulevard in Westfield, New Jersey. This mailbox became a space for panic and paranoia. Its attached arm became a literal red flag for Derek Broaddus one evening in June 2014. The first Watcher letter was found within an envelope described in Reeves Weedman's 2022 article published on The Cut as, quote, a white card-shaped envelope. It was addressed in thick, clunky handwriting to the new owner, and the type note inside began warmly. Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood, end quote. It's likely this letter, among four total, was hand-delivered, but no trace of fingerprints were found. The letter writer clearly did not want to be traced and likely knew there might be repercussions for sending the letters. Receiving this and other letters might have seemed anomalous for Westfield native Maria Broadus, whose childhood home was within blocks of their new address and possibly their letter-writing neighbor. In researching this case, it sticks with me that the Broadduses were not transplants to the area. They were existing residents of Westfield. Whomever the letter writer is, they might not be targeting the Broadduses as much as they want to possess the house, or harbor a grudge against the Broadduses who were already from Westfield, and therefore someone might have heard or tracked their move to one of the most coveted homes on the 600 block boulevard. Nonetheless, the Watcher letters were received over the span of a year and a half, the contents of which were rhetorical questions and arguably veiled threats, rhetoric that could have dual meaning and purpose. 
allusions to the broadest children that would strike suspicion or concern in any parent. The watcher, perhaps aware the broadest could not write back as no return address was provided, assumed and maintained a position of distant control of the family. In a social situation, we might feel uncomfortable answering personal questions. So imagine receiving them in the form of an anonymous letter, how intrusive and uncomfortable that might be. The watcher rhetorically asked the Broadduses, quote, how did you end up here? And did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force from within, end quote. The watcher letters contain personification. They attribute human-like qualities to 657 Boulevard. The watcher wrote that the home felt, quote, anxiety and deified the home by suggesting it had a, quote, force from within. The watcher explained that they were part of some dutiful lineage, their family having watched the house, and now it was their time. But none of this could be corroborated. For all we know, for all the literary style the letters might have, according to some readers, the watcher is simply an unreliable narrator. And their narrative is bizarre and unhinged, particularly when comparing the first and fourth letters, which we'll analyze in the next segment. Their language unhinges itself and descends into an obsessive fever or madness to which we may never understand. The Watcher expresses what could be considered religious allusions to a, quote, second coming of the home. Derek and Maria sought help from the Westfield Police Department and contacted the last most recent owners of the home, John and Andrea Woods, to inquire about the letters and scripted pen name, The Watcher. According to Andrea Woods, the couple received only one letter as 23-year occupants of 657 Boulevard, and they discarded the letter as odd. I find this to be questionable and debatable, considering the watcher echoed their family's enduring fixation on the home to the Broadduses, and clearly contacted the Woodses to, quote, bring them young blood, end quote. The Woodses never disclosed the letter to the Broaddus family. The town of Westfield, as characterized in Weedman's article, is, quote, the kind of place where a new neighbor might greet you with a welcoming note, end quote. Westfield is a small suburban town about 45 minutes outside of New York City, and in 2014 boasted, quote, 30,000 residents from largely well-to-do families, end quote, who arguably wanted to maintain the illusion of safety among its citizens and the aesthetics of the town. Appearances at all cost, it seems. And to me, Westfield, like the Watcher, has an existing narrative and will impose it on anyone who tries to change the status quo. And having said that, I realize I might not be invited to Westfield anytime soon. Speaking of which, the home was, quote, built in 1905. 657 Boulevard was perhaps the grandest home on the block. And when the Woodses put it on the market, they had received multiple offers above their asking price. That led the Broaddus family to initially suspect the watcher might be someone upset over losing out on the house, end quote. While this was or remains a plausible theory, it was ruled out when the other two interested parties dropped their bids on account of a medical issue and finding another home. So this minimizes suspicions surrounding them. But frankly, in a town of 30,000 people with 657 Boulevard surrounded by homes, all eyes were on the Broadduses, and anyone could be the watcher. More than eyes, each letter of the Watcher letters pierced the Broaddus family hopes to formally move into their home. What also sealed their fate as potentially doomed homeowners was the literal sealing of the envelope, the saliva of a mystery woman, 
the results of which were found by the Westfield PD, along with information about the postal location of the letters. They were stamped by the Kearney, New Jersey Post Office. Kearney is a town about 16 miles north of Westfield. The watcher, having never seen a for sale sign, obviously knew about the transfer of the home. And again, the Broadduses were not new residents to Westfield, and therefore, the someone watching them grew more intense with the purchase of 657 Boulevard. Maybe it wasn't so much the home that was the target as much as the Broadduses themselves. Finally, in Weedman's article, he writes that, quote, by the end of 2014, the investigation had stalled. The watcher had left no digital trail, no fingerprints, and no way to place someone at the scene of the crime that could have been hatched from pretty much any mailbox in northern New Jersey. The letters could be read closely for possible clues or dismissed as the nonsensical ramblings of a sociopath, end quote. And this is where our analysis begins. In this segment, Severing the Case, we dissect three aspects of the Watcher case. First will be handwriting and language analysis of the Watcher letters. The second will be persons of interest. And three, pop culture, the seven-episode Netflix series, The Watcher. We cannot analyze every facet of the case, but please email us your ideas and request a follow-up episode, severedpodcast at gmail.com or at severed underscore podcast on Instagram. And remember, we might disagree on parts of the case, but we share a passion for true crime. Can't we all just get along? I hope so. Okay. So let's talk about the envelope, the handwriting on the envelope itself. Drew? Yeah. Okay. So this case is really cool. It has visual evidence that we can work with. So I'm going to pull up the watcher envelope or one of the envelopes of the four letters. And it's actually in our show notes. You can see it from thecut.com. And there are four watcher letters. So let's start with a focus on handwriting. H- what are your initial thoughts of this envelope? All right. So, like, there's two ways to think about the handwriting. One is that it's unintentional. That is natural to the writer. The writer just writes this way. And the other is that it's something that's been carefully fabricated by somebody else who's writing in a persona, right? So, but it's so erratic that it seems unlikely to me to have been created by someone. Handwriting is almost like fingerprints, right? Well, fingerprints are an identifying feature, right? So, handwriting can be as well. But as you just said, it can be manipulated or masked by writing with a non-dominant hand or having someone else write a letter for you. If we're talking about the watcher, my my look or perspective on the envelope, to me, the handwriting looks cryptic. Mm. There are uneven hand strokes visible on each of the three lines if we're looking at the front of the envelope in the recipient address area. There's no return address. Um, right. Obviously, yeah. the watcher is like the king, the queen, the person or of just having no address. It kind of looks like and this is I'm a devil for details. It kind of looks like a felt tip pen was used to scroll the indiv individual letters. And I think that that's, you know, important to know or to note as they're writing or scrolling. I also think it's really interesting this salutation, this M forward slash M Broadus and the last name is misspelled. It's actually phonetically spelled Broadus. 
Then there's a circular mistake before the house number 657 Boulevard, which is written, by the way, in all caps. You got to love that. Mm. And I'm thinking, what if they couldn't read their own handwriting too well, but they wrote in all caps, maybe it's ominous. The Mm, letter S in Westfield is written over that suggests a mistake. There's no punctuation in the envelope, on the envelope. And the angle of the writing, I'm noticing this now, is actually veering off to the right-hand side of the envelope. And I just think that the individual strokes of the letter are uneven. So for example, the letter D in Broadus, they're really squiggly on the upticks. Mm. And this Mm -hmm. is a pattern among really all the letters and words written here. Maybe this is due to an uneven hand or maybe using a non-dominant hand to kind of write the envelope. Again, I'm not a handwriting expert, but it looks like the watcher individually scrawls each letter by not lifting the pen, because it looks like they complete each letter in one stroke. You can see this in the letter R and the letter O. But there's a lack of neatness or precision, and they seem okay with that, because they're like, I'm not changing this envelope out. I think that's information that we get from the watcher, Mm -hmm. whoever they might be. This could be a tell. And also, was the writing or the loose writing indicative of something like, let's say, a nervous system issue, a motor function issue, or maybe, again, vision was an issue for the watcher? What do you think? It looks like a felted pen was used. You're sure you don't work for the Bureau, <laughs> okay? <laughs> My secret agent. Um, the misspellings are interesting, I think. Um, so, like, would this person who's so fixated on the house and the family occupying it at least spell their name correctly? Yeah. Like, there, I mean, there's examples of other misspellings in letters like this. I know, for instance, off the top of my mind, like the Zodiac Killer mm-hmm. uh, misspelled words. Though some think that uh, the suspect in that did it intentionally in some cases with the letters. Now you're speaking my language. I love the Zodiac. I can't wait to get to that oh. case. I mean, it's true about Zodiac, um, but they wrote ciphers. Have you ever seen those ciphers? Yeah, like yeah, online yeah, yeah. and stuff? Mm-hmm. So they were decoding their identity and, and sort of toying with people, toying with the public, right? right? Yeah. But the watcher is not disguising themselves through code in that respect. But factually, here's what we know. We know there's no n- return address visible. The watcher didn't address themselves by their, I don't know, air quotes, pen name on the letter. Let's talk DNA, though. The DNA analysis on the letter said it was a female who licked the envelope, but it also ruled out three women. Maria Broadus, Andrea Woods, she's the former owner of the, of 657 Boulevard, and then Abby Langford, who was, do you know who she is? Yes, Abby Langford uh, was the real estate agent, right? And the uh, yeah. sister of Michael? My favorite person Your for the case. person for the case? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But yeah, she's the real estate agent, the next door neighbor mm-hmm. to the Broadduses, sister of person of interest, right. Michael Langford. Have you, here's something I got to ask you, because I've never seen this looking at it. Have you ever seen a recipient salutation on an envelope with the letters M forward slash M? Have you ever seen that? No, I've never seen that before. Yeah, that's new to me too. I thought it looked like almost a, a measure of, a measurement, a unit of measurement. Yeah. But I think it's actually interesting that, again, Broadus is phonetically spelled, mm-hmm. or maybe the watcher is just a bad speller. Not good with grammar either when we talk about letter writing analysis, if you notice that. Right. But I think that this raises the question whether the watcher Googled real estate records. You know, just, I mean, you would think that there would be a level of accuracy if they cared to look them up. They were committed to not wasting envelopes, as I said before, because of their near misnumbering of the number of the house, the letter of S in Westfield. So, again, maybe gives us some tell about who the person is. What do you think? I mean, the the language, it seems very old-timey to me, for lack of a better term, like very formal. Mm -hmm. We could suspect from several clues uh, that the person who wrote the letters was older. 
Mm. Um, but the letters seem to have an even older, like kind of antiquated quality in some way. And some of the references or phrases in it, like almost not just an older person, but somebody who was like almost of another century or time. The MM is definitely one of those things. Like, I don't imagine they Googled anything. Even a quick like online stalk their life could have come up with at least the names of the Brodus. Like I mean, you. Come on, Boomer. Like you. Like me. Yeah. Come on, Did boomer. you just say, okay, Boomer? I said, come on, Boomers. Oh, my God. Come on, Boomer Watcher. He could Google. Do you think the Watcher's a time traveler? Now you're now you're blowing my mind. I didn't even <laughs> think we're going there. Time travel? <laughs> I mean, possibly. Um, all right. So let's let's talk about some of these actual letters. Um, so we're going to touch on the four letters. Um, I'm going to take the latter two, three and four. And Drew, why don't you take letter one and letter two? You got the Give fun ones. Give us your ones. hot take. I got you, the fun ones. Well, that's, the why fun do you think ones. I arranged the conversation that way? <laughs> All right, so I'm going to tackle letter one with some analysis. And before I say this, we are not forensic linguists. We are just amateur. I don't know what we are, but we're just analyzing the case. So I'm going to characterize or name letter one of the watcher, the dearest new neighbor neighbor letter. You know which one I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I am going to take sort of an excerpt of this. I'm going to highlight some of the language in the letter. We don't want to be exhaustive with reading them to you, but we're going to highlight each one. Do your homework if you're listening to the show. I do my homework. We just met you, but we we expect (laughs) better. So make sure you read up and then come back here and listen to us talk. And this is only episode one, Only episode one. Only one. to shed an audience right away. (laughs) So letter one is the dearest new neighbor letter. And if you haven't read them, please go online, go to the cut, read about it, read about it online, and then come back to us. And then talk to us, create a discourse um, through email or through Instagram. So this letter begins, um, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. So dearest new neighbor, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now. And as it approaches its 110th birthday, obviously they've been counting, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. All right. Here's my take on the letter. Let's have it. (laughs) I hear a tone of dominance It's not a cordial welcome. Like, oh, new neighbors, Mm -hmm. welcome to the neighborhood. No, here's why. Quote, allow me to welcome you. Why would that be necessary when the Broadduses own the house? The watcher Mm -hmm. might feel like they own it, right, by extension of someone in their mind, or they're trying to assert dominance of the neighborhood. I definitely think there's an attachment there. They know it's 110 years old, as I kind of joked before, and have assumed a kind of generational watch over the house. Quote, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming, right? But who put them in charge of this? The major issue I have is that none of this could be corroborated. I mentioned it in the previous segment, the seven-minute story. There are no records we can find, or that, that I've found, to be perfectly honest, um, that the watcher, what the watcher writes mm-hmm. could be verified. Mm-hmm. There are no specific names of the grandfather or father. Remember that they're neighbors, but this person is putting a distance between themselves and the Broadduses, right. maybe for, for conjuring fear. No specific names are there in the letter, but there is an allusion to time and potentially religious symbolism or imagery with the whole second coming part. Mm-hmm. I think the watchers aware the Broadduses are new to the neighborhood, maybe not to Westfield because they didn't say that, but they're the new homeowners, right? The question mark. What second coming could a house possibly have? I mean, that's what I've been churning over in my mind. The, the, also, the first letter did not have a proper recipient address, not like the one we just analyzed. Yeah. It was addressed to the new owner. So 
does that mean that the watcher knew the Broadduses, first of all, couldn't write back? And I think this also says something about their desire to assert, shape, and maybe control a narrative. I think there's a power in this idea of, you know, like the watcher thinking, I can write, you can only read my words. You have no voice. I am the voice or the voice of this house. So there's an assertion of dominance. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think the letters are, for me, I keep coming back to this thought in my mind of paranoia by proxy. The letters are the watcher's reach into the Broadus's lives. The watcher has come so far as maybe putting it into the mailbox. They often think about how did the letter get there? There was no actual recipient address. Mm -hmm. So maybe they physically put it in the mailbox, but did not physically, or maybe that we know to be fair, ever trespassed onto the actual Broadus property. And just the suggestion or intimation that, quote, what lies within the walls would immediately create suspicion, paranoia, and fear. And then, this is what I love, just this abrupt tonal shift to, quote, why are you here? I will find out. As though they have a right to know or a a kind of ownership of the house in some way and that they need to know the intent of the Mm Broadduses. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that... The control is like an inherent from the very beginning, right? Like, I mean, this, I, th- I think there's a certain degree of control one has behind, you know, the cloak of anonymity. I think that's the whole kind of point of this. Uh, and I think that, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, I want to hear you talk more about paranoia. I know that you're really into that. You can steal some ideas. Uh, you steal from the best. That's where all the great. Permanently steal, right? borrow? Right, permanently borrow. <laughs> Let's talk about letter two. This is a crime podcast. <laughs> I guess it okay. is. So, letter two, we will title that as Young Blood, Sleeping Arrangements, and I Could Be Anyone letter, <laughs> right? We'll take that out of Sleeping there. Sleeping Arrangements. Yeah, it's, it's creepy. So, let's. Um, Let's extract or cherry pick some of the longer letter here. So let me begin with a read. 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. We're going to skip down a little bit. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. So basically the watcher is asking in the preceding lines, who's going to sleep on the second floor, the attic, who's going to have the bedroom facing the street. And then they say rhetorically, who am I? I am the watcher. Or they seem to answer it. And have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. I pass by many times a day, 657 Boulevard. This is the best is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Broadus family. Broadus is again misspelled. Welcome to the product of your greed, exclamation point. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving day. Okay. Hmm. This guy must have a really good resume, (laughs) too. What was your former job? Uh, I just did 657 Boulevard. I'm going to do the voiceovers for The Watcher. Yeah. No, assuming they're still around, but hopefully not. Okay, so here's what I get out of this letter. This is my interpretation, but I want to hear more. Um, I get personification and or projection from the watcher. So phrases like the home is, quote, anxious for you to move in. Obviously, the house cannot do that. It's personification. Um, Or it's the watcher projecting their anxiety of the Broadduses moving in onto these letters and then onto the home itself and the Broadduses. I also think there's a note or a note of implied or suggested danger here right so after Mm -hmm. the watcher mentions quote young blood 
which is that even a euphemism for the children? Um, in reference to the broadest children, they allude to the house having secrets. This coincides with the first letter and the whole idea of, quote, do you know the history of the house and do you know what lies within the walls? I definitely see a point of continuity among the first and second letters. There's a continued thread about the house and this impression, this idea that it holds secrets. I think the danger to follow up on my ideas, I read this as, quote, I would be very afraid if I were the broadest children being in the basement. You can't hear them scream from that spot in the house. And then they just abruptly shift to, you know, where would everybody be sleeping? It helps me to know who's in which bedroom, then I can plan better. I think the watcher here tonally pivots to a stalker Mm -hmm. right here. Mm -hmm. More than the first letter, the watcher says, quote, all the windows and doors will allow me to see you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. Okay, we've stepped beyond control into, I think, pure fear or inciting pure fear. The watcher is saying, I'm aware of the layout of the home, and this is just me riffing on what they're saying. I'm aware of the layout in the home from the basement to the attic, basically, and when would the Broadduses be most vulnerable at home when they're sleeping? When they're sleeping and when their children are playing in another part of the home that seems to be not soundproof, but along those lines, I think the watcher is deliberately preying on their suspicions and paranoia. In a way, I think the watcher has already, in a matter of speaking, figuratively entered the home by telling the family about its interior. Okay, I know what you know, or I know more than you. And they're simply not safe, the Broaddus is outside the home, and they're not inside the home. The watcher writes, I pass by many times a day, 657 Boulevard. This is interesting. It's my job, my life, my obsession. To me, this sounds really lyrical and sad at the same time. Just the fact that their pen name is The Watcher induces paranoia, mm-hmm. let alone the fact that they talk about essentially stalking and harassing. But the name is obvious and I think unclever. I also think there's a punishing tone here to the second letter. So for example, as we get down or digressive through the letter, quote, welcome to the product of your greed exclamation point. It's exclamation, it's emphatic, it's exclamation point for effect. And I think this is the first time beyond your letters, which we'll get into three and four, right. that become more emphatic in tone. And mm-hmm. you can see that through the punctuation. Noticeably, they don't punctuate on the envelope. And the first letter is just standard punctuation. There's a pace of periods which intimates a pause or a longer mm-hmm. pause. Mm-hmm. There's nothing emphatic about the first letter other than maybe, uh, quote, I'll find out why you're here, end quote. Here's the tone shift with emphasis. And strangely, this is one of my favorite parts of the letter. After calling the Broadus is greedy, the watcher says, happy moving day. Like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. what? <laughs> I, mean, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's got such a menacing tone to it as well. Like, Will, happy moving day. Yeah, I'll be he watching. To, if he, you know, if he swore, he would say happy moving day. You fuckers. But he didn't say that, right? (laughs) I'll send over Um, coffee or or, uh, DoorDash. Right. I'll send you DoorDash. So um, let's talk about also the young blood here because that's something that stands out. So I dug into young blood as a reiterated phrase. Wait, so so you haven't, have you heard or used the phrase young blood yourself? Because I've I've definitely heard people say like, if there's youthful people in an area, like, oh, it's good to have some young blood around here to have some young people. I feel like I've heard that in use, you know, in parlance and usage, you know, but... I've heard it, but I don't use it. But you in my don't everyday. use it. I don't use it in my everyday language. So you're language. not the watcher. Basically. 
I could be. I'm just lying. <laughs> That's but, so watcher. It's such a watcher thing to say. I could be. You don't know. You're I'm the watcher. watcher. Um, no, you're right. There is a kind of parlance. There's a pop culture connection to mm. it. So I did some digging around this because I had no idea. Yeah. Um, I found a popular song from 1957. This is going to go somewhere, I promise. Okay. All right, all right. Okay. Na- a popular song from 1957 by the Coasters entitled, you guessed it, Young Blood. It was covered by many other artists. This could be a tell. Maybe Little Watcher or Younger Watcher. Oh, Pine Size Watcher. Baby Watcher. Baby Watcher. Listen to this music or lived in an intergenerational home with music of a bygone era that became part of the language in the home. This is speculation, but the song was number two on the Hot Billboard charts, was covered by Mel Robbins in 1962, Joan Baez in 1964, mm-hmm. lesser known artists through the 70s, The Righteous Brothers in 1975, and wait for this gem. You ready for it? Bruce Willis in 1987. Bruce Willis. John McClane covered this song. Well, while while I, I was researching the case, I had his... Did you hear his song, Respect Yourself? I had I it mean, over and over I my head. I just have these like, bad flashbacks from the 90s of him late playing 80s. harmonica on the, on the David Letterman on Late Night. I don't know. I mean, it's man. a gem. It's just a detail. Yeah, but yeah. it goes to show that pop culture could be infused into these letters, particularly three and four, which we're going to get to. Yeah, you never know. Um so letter three is what we'll call the the house is crying and the turning on me letter. Another so another big turn here. So I'll read some selected portions of this. The house is crying from all the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past. Um, then the watcher says, In the 60s were a good time for 657 Boulevard when I ran from room to room. Again, okay, boomer. Imagine the life with the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old, and so did my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, in the second paragraph of this letter, there's this big turn where uh, the watcher says, It used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. And now, you know, what's interesting is, like, not only did we go um, with your last letter from projecting. Uh, onto the house like the house is almost a stand-in for who the watcher is but now uh, you know we went through the watcher kind of identifying themselves to now the, the the watcher is like at odds with the house which I thought was so interesting um, so so much personification this one mm-hmm. um, uh, you know there's this you know really like I just I can't get over like, the strange turn where that point of view shifts and like the watcher goes from being the protector of the house mm-hmm. at odds with the house like I said um, it's like all of a sudden it's like the writer is so angry they can't maintain the distance, like yeah. the ominous distance of the earlier letters. Like before, they maintain their composure, but now the cracks are starting to show, and they're so angry they can't even keep up this kind of threatening tone. It's like they're just getting so angry, almost as if they're repressing this rage, and now it's starting to come out in letter three. What do you think, Drew? So two things. One, you drew my attention to the fact that the 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 watcher wrote that um, the house got older and so did my father. It's so interesting that they are aligning or juxtaposing or chronicling the fam- the fam- their family with the age of the house. Yeah. I mean, they feel that connected to it, I think, that they would do that, that it's almost a member of their family. So as my dad is aging, so too is the house. Right. I think yeah. maybe the watcher sees the family the house as the family or part of their family. I definitely like your interpretation. I think the Broadduses, again, are being controlled by the Watcher because they perceive this person to be a threat. That wasn't always the case with the other letters that were received. So the Woodses received a letter, and one other family on the boulevard, they discarded the letter as well. And I think they moved in around the same time as the Broadduses. So I guess it's 
I, the beholder, it's what you fear the most when you receive a letter like this. But I think that the watcher assumes they have control over the broadduses. You know, they're in their mind, you know, it's probably impossible to pierce. But if we could speculate, the watcher assumes they have control over the broadduses. And maybe that's why they're angry. They lack control and they're mentally unstable and their mind is sort of erratic, not just their handwriting. But again, if you comparatively analyze these pieces, you see a kind of erraticism in the writing as you do in the speaking. And I think, again, they devolve into this anger and rage that you see. Maybe it's repression, but I think there's two types of fear going on and being experienced in two ways. The Broadduses are reactive to the fear mm. that is being placed on them, mm -hmm. and the Watcher is conjuring the fear on them. What do you think about that? I mean, what I'm curious about is, like, do we know with the Woodses, for instance, why the watcher didn't send more letters? Did the watcher, for instance, see one of the Broduses open the letter in the driveway and read it and look disturbed, and that was a cue to continue? Did they? Did the watcher, you know, see the you know the the uh, person from the Woods family toss the letter? Yeah. So two things. Yeah. One, the we don't know that the Woodses got more letters or not. Mm, I mean, they claim they right, only got point, one letter, but they claim that. We don't really know that for sure to be fair, or at least that's the extent of my and, research. And they didn't disclose that when they sold the house. That they got no, the they letters. did right. not. So they could have gotten more and sat on that for that sweet, sweet resale value. Well, that would be intent. And I think the second thing is, I don't remember reading anything about the Woods's seeing watching the Broadduses open any letters in fact I, I would imagine they would have been out of the home by then no, I, meant like, I meant like the watcher I wonder if the watcher like for oh, instance saw one of the Broadduses open the letter at the mailbox I'm, I might be this is coming later but I might be letting the, the, the Netflix series kind of like color my mind a little bit but <laughs> maybe maybe saw them and looking you know look disturbed and hey this is a you know a, 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 a clue that I can now kind of fuck with these people but I don't know I mean these are all this is why it's such an interesting case because all these unknowns right like Known unknowns. Known and unknowns. also, well, I mean, if you call yourself the watcher, you may likely be watching. Right. So it's entirely possible. Right. What about letter four? So letter four, um, what we'll call the survival assault soldiers and the quote, I'm going to fucking threaten you letter. Sounds good. Um, 657 Boulevard survived your attempt at assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher. Now it's getting into, um, I mean, just nonsense, right? Um, uh, there's a second paragraph in the letter where the Watcher talks about maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day. Uh, and then just all of these uh, ways that the family could um, fall sick or die. And then ends it with, and the Watcher won. So it's so rambling and nonsensical in many parts. Um, but, you know, it's also kind of the end of like a logical trajectory that we can trace from the first letter. The writer is now at the high point of being unhinged, I think. And not only can they not contain the anger, as they did earlier, but the anger and the frustration come across in erratic and uncontrolled ways. The last letter was strange, but this is the one that leads me to suspect that these letters aren't really being fabricated or written in a voice. It, it doesn't seem like someone creating persona. I mean, it's possible, but it gets so dark so fast, but is also petty and repressed and full of rage. And it, again, it's so erratic. I can't imagine that somebody could really devise this and create this from thin air. What do you think? I think you're definitely on the repression train. Yeah. I think... <laughs> <laughs> All aboard the repression train. We're, uh, that's, that's an Ozzy Osbourne song. 
all that's the crazy train. <laughs> well, I think we're, we're no, that's fine. I appreciate the music. So now I think we're really getting Freudian. Uh, with repression. I mean, it's possible, all the points that you're bringing up. I also think there's a level of delusion here. I think it's delusional. Maybe the watcher uses defense mechanisms to cope in some way, and we see that expressed through the letters. Here's the reality. There's no army of supporters. There's no gates to barricade. This is a suburban street, a 600-block suburban street. No soldiers were present. This is someone that's potentially having an episode. I say this as someone who is not a mental health clinician. Of some sort, they're they're just, again, devolving um, and spiraling, maybe. It's all in their mind. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a tell. And a lot of people say, or they speculate, well, is this a joke? Is someone just sending these letters as a prank? Right. I doubt that. When, I mean, one fingerprint, and you're in the Westfield Police Department getting questioned. Right. Um, the lick of the envelope gave us information, clearly. Putting a stamp on the envelope, I mean, wouldn't that be considered harassment? I'm not sure about the laws in New Jersey around that. But you have to think about the level of risk that someone would have to undertake in order to go that far. And then also, the more you send something, uh, the more likely the risk of getting caught would be, Mm -hmm. I would imagine. But going back to this idea, it's all in their mind, this watcher. There's no tangible evidence of any of this going on. Once again, I think that's thematically present through their posturing, through these letters. And I I totally realize I don't want to be insensitive to the Broadduses or anyone else. I call it posturing, but they were clearly traumatized by this. So I want to say that. But they go from... And letter one, deifying or idolizing 657 Boulevard to then shifting focus on themselves, actually, as having soldiers to save the soul of the house with their orders. It it made me feel like they saw themselves as a general in an army or general of an Mm -hmm. army. Hail the Watcher. This is very Zodiac to me. But in their mind, I think this has all been a game. They've won. And it's menacing, threatening, and unhinged. I'll say that much. Yeah. So let's um, let's talk about some persons of interest and, you know, who we have. So, you know, some plausible, maybe not so plausible theories about the watcher's identity. Mm-hmm. You know, the usual suspects. So we have the Broduses, the gamer and his girlfriend, Michael and or Abby Langford, a housekeeper. The list goes on. Colonel Mustard in the hall with the <laughs> candlestick. The butler did it. It wasn't me. <laughs> I think it was you. Yeah, we have a list of people of interest, persons of interest. So here's what we factually know. Number one, the letters were threat assessed by a former FBI agent, Robert Lenahan. That's such a great name. Who, quote, recognized several old-fashioned ticks, going back to what you said mm-hmm. about maybe someone of a, a mature generation. But um, old-fashioned ticks in the letters and pointed to an older writer, end quote. And also, quote, the letters had a certain literary panache which suggested a voracious reader and a surprising lack of profanity given the level of anger which Lenahan thought meant a less macho writer end quote wow there's so much first of all to unpack yeah, from ageism time. to gendering the letters Lenahan assumes that the letter writer is male first of all but not macho enough because they don't swear What I'll say about this is it's an interesting point. I didn't think about the lack of profanity as a clue about the Watcher, which is so true. Mm. I mean, this is why we're not in the FBI. But Lenahan also found, quote, enough typos and errors to imply a certain erraticism, end quote, which is from the Weedman article. For example, 
the watcher actually screwed up on the date of the first letter in sending it. Yes. Writing it was a Tuesday and it was a Wednesday. Could you imagine them during yeah. the pandemic when no. we're all screwed up about no. that? No, no, no. Um, there was some class tension, so the projecting anger at wealth. Mm -hmm. And this is probably my favorite part of the watcher letter as they hated the idea that, quote, okay, new money was moving into the town of Westfield. Mm -hmm. And they actually wrote this. Listen to this. Quote, are you one of those Hoboken transplants who are ruining Westfield? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Listen, watcher, if you're listening, don't send us a letter. Send it, send it to Harry um, if you're going to send one. And there's more parking in Westfield than there is in Hoboken. True we'll that. say that much. But this leads me to believe that the watcher is, I don't know, are they Clint Eastwood and Gran Torino? Get off my lawn. <laughs> I was waiting for it in the letter. I know. All right. So, I mean... I think that the lack of profanity automatically disqualifies the theory that the watcher is actually from New Jersey. Oh, this fucking guy always with the watching. Hey, how come the suspect pool is concentrated in this one town? We might need to start searching the Midwest. That's where all the polite people live. As far as I you know, from my experience. But don't even get me started on those Hoboken transplants. This used to be a nice neighborhood, you know? That's the kind of rhetoric. I had to mute my mic because I was just laughing pretty hardcore. Oh, so that's your New Jersey impression? Oh, oh! It's very Sopranos, yeah. right? Or is this the Jersey Shore Watcher? We don't have a Jersey it's, Shore Watcher. You know, it's all the same. So, H, on a serious note, do you suspect the Broadus family as persons of interest? Are they your persons of interest for this thing? I don't think so. Um, the kind of unhinged quality of the writing in the letters, especially the latter two, seems strange. Seem like so strange that I couldn't imagine someone could actually invent this stuff, right? Um, of course, it's always possible, like I said, but the Broaduses. Um, would have really had to be playing the long game here. I, I can't see the payoff if they did that, right? Um, I feel like Michael Langford could certainly be involved, but the female DNA on the envelope mm -hmm. is, can't be ignored. Um, you know, what if his sister Abby was involved? Or better yet, what if they got their 90-year-old mother to write the envelope? It's an unsteady hand. Um, it could be attributed to an elderly person, possibly somebody with, like, arthritic joints, arthritic fingers, and uh, hence the kind of erratic shaping of the letters. You're going to put this on... 90-year-old at the time, Peggy Langford, the mother of Michael and Abby Langford? Yes. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. It's a, it's a perfect plan. You never know. Peggy. It would be unassuming. Let's yeah. just say that. It would be unassuming. Okay. Bear with me. All right. Mine is Michael Langford. He's my person of interest or was Your my brother. person of interest. I say that with a caveat. I know he was interviewed and questioned twice by the Westfield PD and then in air quotes cleared, but no public explanation was given as to why they cleared him. He was the next door neighbor of the Broadduses. He lived with your favorite, the 90-year-old mother, Peggy Langford. She has passed. She passed three years ago um, and siblings. What we know of Michael Langford is he dealt with schizophrenia, though I'm not sure the extent of his diagnosis. But I've read that he was considered a non-threat to the neighborhood. That can be entirely subjective, though he was characterized as, have you read this, a Boo Radley figure? I did read that, yeah, as a, as a Boo Radley Someone figure. sullen and misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And, and quietly threatening to many quietly people, Quietly threatening, right? yeah. maybe threatening through writing. We don't know. But despite the alleged clearing of his name, I think he's a person of interest for me. Maybe the WPD handled it internally on account of his being, you know, a longtime resident of Westfield. Mm -hmm. maybe Insular community. Right, so yeah, I mean, to a degree, small uh, also lots of parking, right? Lots of unlike, parking. unlike Hoboken, lots of um, but also empathizing with the fact that Michael too might have been traumatized from the questioning and what that experience might have been like for him as someone you know afflicted with schizophrenia, right? Uh, in connection, even being associated with 
the watcher letters, right? So that could be traumatic. So I just want to say that. But circling back to the FBI agent that we mentioned, Lenahan, and the watcher uh, threat assessment, there are theories about the writing style here. It's some people say that it's literary, that these letters are literary and they suggest a voracious reader. Right. You want to hear something really strange okay. and odd. Yep. This squares with Michael or George Michael Langford's 2022 obituary. He passed away in April of 2020, may he rest in peace, where he's described as, quote, you guessed it, a voracious reader oh, in his weird. obit. Weird. Someone who would go often to the Westfield Library, a decades-long routine this was, to read and check out books. He liked to read. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. Sure, sure. It fits the profile, but I don't know that it's conclusive that this means anything. The Watcher claimed in their third letter that they, quote, ran the halls in the 1960s, end quote. This would align with Langford, who was born, and I gathered this information from his obit, in 1953. I can't math. But he probably would have been about seven or older, right, in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that he could have been running the halls of 657 Boulevard. Langford's father, Dick Langford, passed away in 2002, but would have been alive in 1960s to maybe, air quotes, mm-hmm. watch the house. So this squares with the watcher sure. letter. Yeah. Here's the thing. I was curious about the connection, though, between schizophrenia and handwriting, because we talked about that in the right. first sure. the yeah. first bit. Of the watcher envelope discussed at the top of the segment. My research led me to a few facts about the correlation between schizophrenia and handwriting to, again, relate to Michael Langford. This is from Emerald Isle Wellness and Recovery.com. As they define schizophrenia as, quote, an uncommon mental illness that can seriously degrade your connection to everyday reality, the illness is most well-known for its ability to trigger symptoms of psychosis. Mm-hmm. However, it can also affect you in a range of other ways. One potential change is a notable alteration of your normal handwriting oh. and schizophrenia in handwriting. That's, end that's quote. super interesting. Yeah. So listen to this. I went down the rabbit hole of this. Right. I also learned about episodic schizophrenia. And while I'm, again, not in the mental health field, neither of us are, True. it strikes me as a possibility that if Langford wrote the, la- the Watcher letters, big if, apart from his family saying, nah, he's not capable of it. If he did, then the third and fourth letters, I think, could potentially be, with a caveat, reflective of psychosis mm. or someone losing touch with reality. Right, yeah. That's one way to interpret them. I know other people online have different theories. I'm sure. just throwing one out there. Sure, sure. To be fair, we don't know if the letters were all written by the same person, but it's noticeable how the tone and language shifts dramatically and also from desperate to cloying mm-hmm. when the Broadduses never move into the home. The watcher seems really disjointed. They're saying the house has turned against them, as you read before in the right. letters among yeah. letters uh, three and four, but pleads for the Broadduses to come back. It's actually really strange juxtaposition here. It seems unhinged. The letters can be individually read and interpreted, but when comparatively analyzed side by side, would you agree that there's an erratic unstable, unhinged, and almost contradictory perspective narrative here. Absolutely. I mean, I think he goes, or excuse me, the watcher goes, um, you know, back and forth to these different personas, these different points of view from which they write. Uh, and again, the way that that happens, the the, the rhythm of it, there's, it, it mm-hmm. makes very little sense to me reading it. Again, I'm not an expert, but um, it is erratic, it is unstable, it is unhinged. This strange dichotomy actually got me thinking too. I'm not sure if Michael Langford was verbal, but schizophrenia in general could impair one's ability to, quote, express emotions, speak or feel pleasurable sensations, end quote. 
But does that apply to someone's writing ability? Interesting. Okay. Really interesting. Is it possible for a schizophrenic person to not be verbal but still be expressive through writing? The fourth letter that you read in particular reflects what I researched as, quote, symptoms of mental disorganization that may include things as confused or jumbled thoughts, illogical and disordered or nonsensical speech, end quote. Hmm. So, circling back to schizophrenia, motor function, and the envelope, individuals with the illness could have trouble performing complex tasks, I'm paraphrasing the article I read, or have muscle spasms, coordination issues, right? You talked about potential arthritis, Um, irregular movements. So, thinking back to the handwriting, the unevenness or unsteadiness on the envelope could possibly be explained by a motor function or a nervous system issue. There could be many explanations. We don't know. This could be a stretch. I don't know if Langford's, I don't know of Langford's range of access or ability. I also think that the typewritten letters make sense if someone were not fully capable of writing with dexterity, Mm -hmm. some level of dexterity. They could actually try to mask it through typing the letters though, right? right? Wouldn't they? Maybe that could also explain why they're typed. Mm Other notable suspects, just to kind of round this out, a housekeeper or relatives who worked at the home. This was positioned in the um, article we read on the cut or in the neighborhood, but someone who could not afford to live in the neighborhood, the gamer with the watcher name and his drive-by girlfriend. And of course, the Broadduses were side-eyed by the town of Westfield. Lingering questions that you have, H, because I have some. All right. Um, I'm going to, I don't, I'm going to read your first (laughs) lingering question. (laughs) Steal from the best. So, you know, did Abby Langford, Michael's sister, know the Broadduses? Mm. Maybe she spoke about the sale of the next door home. She had a pulse on local real estate. and Maybe Michael heard about it. I mean, I mean, my related question, again, is about, you know, Peggy, right? Like, I don't know. Maybe this was some kind of joint effort where, like, Abby uh, had some stake in this. She had her brother write the letters because she knew that he had, you know, schizophrenia perhaps. And then also, you know, mom got in on the act. It was like a family routine and she licked the envelopes and she maybe hand wrote uh, the envelope. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I find it strange that they did not look more into Peggy. Isn't that by definition a conspiracy? Yeah. Or collusion. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with question number two that I have. Did Michael ever go to Kearney, New Jersey or have a connection there because the letters were postmarked out of there Mm -hmm. was there any video footage of someone mailing letters on or about the dates of the watcher letters that maybe the police could timeline now so like for carney Mm. there's a carney post office yeah and then carney in new jersey is the one of the large usps distribution centers for mail so a lot of the mail from like north jersey goes through carney like when you get something shipped it gets processed in carney at this really big kind of warehouse post office and then sent to all northern new jersey so i'm wondering i guess i have to go back and look at the envelope to see if it was postmarked at the individual carney it's here you know so let's take a look so was it, it postmarked at the individual carney it says carney new jersey at mm-hmm. the top 22 july 2014 p.m. at a certain time and hour that is what we have Yes, I'm not sure because there, you know, there is the small post office that you're saying. Well, mm. did he go to Carney? You would mail out of there. I have not been to the distribution center, but I would imagine you could probably go. But I don't think that would be a place that you would go to mail a letter. I feel like it's a processing center, but it's also located in Carney and it serves a lot of like northern New Jersey mail flow. I didn't know that, so you actually maybe answered. Funny that enough, you? when I've driven on my way to Hoboken, <laughs> where I couldn't find a fucking spot from my life. 
when I was driving to Hoboken, though, if you drive a certain way, and don't ask me about directions, don't ask me for directions, I have no sense of directions, this is why I use Waze, uh, who don't sponsor the show, but on my way driving to or from Hoboken, you pass Kearney to get on to one of the major highways, and it's a massive distribution center with, like, you know, a couple hundred mail trucks, like, it's a, it's a facility, it's not like a lone post office, so if it was sent through there or got picked up through there, that was a very different case for Michael going to Carney than if he actually went to the Carney post office proper and like mailed a letter from there. Great. And thank you for all of that. So then that raises another question. Where did the letters originate from? Where were they mailed from? Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Third question. You want to round it out? So did the Westfield Police Department ever swab the DNA or fingerprints of my girl Peggy Langford, (laughs) Michael's mom? Um, Maybe they did. We, so we don't have evidence that they did or did not look into Peggy Langford. Same thing with the way you were saying earlier that maybe they um, kind of played down things that Michael had done because it's a small town. They know him and all this kind of stuff. Uh, maybe the same thing. Let's not bother an old lady. She's 90. She's been living here her whole life. Why would we? But, like, I would think if this is a case of stalking and anonymous threats and there are very few leads, I would think that there should be no stone unturned. You know, here's another female living in the house. Agreed. As far as I know, I don't know her personally, but I imagine she had saliva. <laughs> and why not? What's there to lose? Um, you know, I mean, I could see a scenario in which this is argued by Abby, maybe the daughter. How no? How dare you? Don't put my mother through that. Don't swab her. You know, like what if? What if the mother? You know, was, um, you know, non-communicative. Maybe Abby just literally walked up and just. Wipe the letter on her mom's mouth to get some saliva. Okay, now we're getting really speculative. We're getting oh, into mean, an area that we don't know. This is very performative. We don't know is, that for well, sure. We, well, we don't know any of this for sure. This is all speculation. We're not experts, but there true. are unanswered. Hey, all I'm saying, WPD, is if you want me to dismiss these crazy theories I have, then show me some proof. Do the do the legwork is all I'm saying, you know? Should we go into the third segment of pop culture? We need to. We so we got to watch Netflix here. Yeah. So uh, again, if you have not watched the limited series The Watcher on Netflix, please stop the podcast, go marathon it, <laughs> come back in two days, and finish the podcast. No. Um, so um, let's start with this. You hated the writing of the show. It's Ryan Murphy. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, you know he's 
he's hit or miss with me, right? Ryan Murphy. I mean, I liked some of American Horror Story. The first season was good. The Coven season I thought was very good. But, you know, I thought the writing here was, and I say this with much affection and aplomb, limp and filled with just cheese and cringe. I mean, come on, Ryan. God bless you. God bless you. I'm happy for you and all your success. I wish you many happy returns, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, this is what happens when you spread yourself too thin and you just slap your name on anything. I just thought it lacked in a lot of ways that could have very easily been made better. I don't know. So the writing could have been better. The writing could have been better. Okay. Maybe you write it. It's a, I mean, I could. Um, It's an entire series about somebody who writes. (laughs) And the writing wasn't good, I don't think. But anyway, that's, I mean, that's neither here nor there. we got to talk more about the actual content. So Okay, so let's start here. Which characters were your favorites holy from the show? Holy shit, holy shit. Mitch and Moe. Game <laughs> over. Okay? Mitch and Moe. I aspire to be that pissed off and nosy when I'm that age. At this rate, I don't think that's going to be a very difficult milestone to reach. Um, also, now I have my plan for retirement. Three words. <laughs> Lawn, chairs, Arugula. You forgot harvesting. That's what Mo says I'm in the gonna, episode. I'm, I'm gonna, harvesting. I'm not going to harvest when I'm retired. <laughs> Hire a young kid to do that. Let me tell you something. You are Mitch and Mo. <laughs> it's not what you need to aspire to be. You are them the now. The alpha and omega of Mitch. You and Mo. really are. When I was yeah. watching the episodes, I thought yeah. of you as Mitch and Mo. Um, I'll tell you, my characters. I think they're generally likable, except for me, Nora Brannock, played by Naomi Watts, and the Brannock children. Didn't like them. Um, I love Mitch and Mo, Mitch and Big Mo. Mitch and Big Mo. As I said, you remind me of Big them. Mo. Combined, they're your personality. Yeah. So, folks listening, this is what you're signing up for. Um, my all-time favorite character, Theodore Birch, baby. Oh, she's pretty. I too, yeah. love her. When she yeah. came into the second episode, mm-hmm. for me, she made everything. I just love her. Love her costuming. I just love her. I love her. Uh, scenes with her and Dean Brannock, Bobby Cannavale, they add mystery and depth to the show. I love when he was talking about replacing the Marble Island for the Butcher Block. You remember that? Oh, yeah. On Sundays when I'm making sauce. Stains. Stains, <laughs> you know? I love the Winslows, too. I know you don't like Pearl Winslow, but I love them. But the show is conflating, talking about content, it, it did conflate the John List murders of yes. Westfield that occurred in the 70s. Right. And suggested that the List murders, which we factually know is, is that's not correct, yeah. that it, it took place in the Brannock home or the Broadus home. That is incorrect. Right. Um, we're also supposed to believe Pearl Winslow is having sex with John List or the character of John List or John Graff. Who knows? I should say John Graff, right? John Graff. They're on the Westfield Preservation Society together. Mm -hmm. And I understand why they added the list murders because it was major news in Westfield in the 70s. And just just so you know, it's going to be our second episode. It added context about the neighborhood being, you know, unsafe. And it implied that there might be a psychic or traumatic imprint from prior violence in that home that yes was also targeted by the infamous watcher what do you think i mean again what the what the fucking writing like the story wasn't interesting enough to sustain a series like we have to add supernatural elements uh hills have eyes style hillbilly murder neighbors uh in the <laughs> characters of the langfords uh who uh who were portrayed here um and we have to tie in a serial killer. <laughs> like, holy shit. Like, I was waiting for the fucking aliens to land. Like, I, you know, like, I mean, uh, the, uh, hopefully, dear listeners, uh, from our episode here, you found that this subject was interesting enough in and of itself. I don't know why all the bells and whistles and everything. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, and Bobby Cannavale. I like that guy. He's a good actor. Why, why are you wasting his talents with this garbage dialogue? Did you hear there might be a season two? 
How? It fucking so it's over. No, we're gonna watch it. But I'm sad that the <laughs> we are gonna watch it because that's what we do. Maybe here. there'll be a follow up episode if it's requested maybe. by listeners. If we have any listeners, maybe. Um, I'll no, let you know if they contact us. me to do the scripting. I'd be happy. I let me know. Ryan, call me. So a little bit. We have some extras. Uh, so I definitely got when I was watching this show, which again is not always factually accurate. Um, Shades of Kubrick and The Shining uh, with the story uh, in the show, the idea that the caretaker, caretakers of the home are part of a generational mystery. While I was reading the Weedman article, fun fact, the Broadus has contacted a former FBI agent who was the inspiration for Clarice Starling. Hello, Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the article, taking another look at The Watcher, what we know about the case four years later by Reeves Weedman, published on thecut.com on October 11th, 2022. And this is the author who wrote the original uh, story on The Cut. Those interested, quote, tried to identify a literary inspiration for the letters and suggested a subpoena of library records to find someone familiar with the work of Shirley Jackson, who wrote the famous story of the lottery, if anybody's familiar with that, or the novel Watching You, published just a few months before The Watcher's Letters and narrated by a stalker. I am the one who watches. One reader saw echoes of Dean Koontz in The Watcher's uh, care for language and in their ultimate effect, the disturbance of the social fabric of an entire town. As it happens, and I was going to say this, Kuntz published a novel called Watchers in 1989, which I feel like I read like a million years ago. I never read it, and I don't, I don't particularly like Dean Kuntz. I don't like his style of writing. I think, I mean, like, no knock on Dean here, but I, mean, I think I read it like seventh grade. Okay. <laughs> like a while ago. But well, it was same like, thing but, with Shirley but, Jackson. But, and I think, it had, I think it was some kind of like creature thing. I think the Watchers were some kind of supernatural werewolfy creatures or something like that. Right? The closest literary connection anyone could draw was a short story from the 19th century by J. Sheridan Le Fanu, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, an Irish author of Gothic Mysteries. The story follows a Mr. Barton who goes mad after receiving a series of threatening letters at his home sent by a writer using the pen name. You Let ready for this? Yep, go for it. What is it? The Watcher. The Watcher. Um... Here's an excerpt from the story. We have time. Okay. Yeah. Mr. Barton is warned of danger. He will do so. He will do wisely to avoid street. If he walks there as usual, he will meet with something bad. Let him take warning once for all, for all he has good reason to dread. Signed, mm. The Watcher. The Watcher. So is The Watcher a literary person? Or is it so generic? A title right. for a stalker a name, right? That you could easily find ten examples where the Unclever. watcher is used, mm-hmm. right? Unclever, and I mean, and I hope we're not saying that Mister Le Fanu <laughs> is unclever himself, uh, but uh, you know, who knows? Who knows? So um, we hope that you enjoyed this severing of the watcher letters case. Uh, I am your host, Harry Chambers, and I'm Drew Hudson. Please write to us at severedpodcast at gmail.com or connect with us on Instagram at severed underscore podcast. We enjoy talking with each other. We enjoy talking with you. And until next time. Once again, we were your hosts, Harry Chambers and Drew Hudson. You can email us at severedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash severedpodcast or on Instagram at severed underscore podcast. Logo art for the show was done by Drew Hudson. The theme song and other music is composed by me, Harry Chambers. I also record and edit the show. The show concept, researching, and lead writing is done by Drew Hudson. And our producer is Rogue Media Network.